Can we uh, thank our worship team leading us tonight? Thank you, guys. Yeah. Grateful, grateful, grateful for their talent and ability and grateful to, to be led in worship by these guys tonight. Let me say welcome to you guys for being here at this special gathering. Um, I, I, my family loves Camp Spofford. We've been coming to the family camp every year for the last uh, seven years since I became the pastor at Salem Church. And uh, we just love this place. My, my kids love it. My wife and I, we enjoy it as well. It's great to get to know folks uh, that run the camp. Uh, uh, Dan uh, Syverson, is Dan here? No? He's here. I'm so proud of you, Dan. So proud of you for being here. He's going to sneak out in just a minute to go watch a baseball game. But, uh, but he's here for now. Dan and his entire team. I got to say, honestly, um, I've preached all over the world. Okay? I've preached in, in Asia, in Europe, in uh, South America, and all over North America. I've and I don't know that I've ever been booed in an introduction before. <laughs> Thank you, Tori. Uh, appreciate that. Uh, for pointing out the one thing about me that everybody in this room hates. Uh, any other Braves fans in the room? Anybody? Anybody Atlanta Braves fan? Do I have anybody? One! Praise God. Look at this other saint of the Lord Jesus. And one right here, too. There's three of us. You're among greatness in this room tonight, gentlemen. You need to know that. But Tori points out the one thing about me that everybody hates, and that is that we're the champs, and you just got to get used to it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I am excited to be here, booed or not booed. Uh, I am grateful for the opportunity to be speaking this year at our, uh, at our men's retreat, and I'm looking forward to our time together. We'll be together tonight, tomorrow morning, tomorrow evening, and then Sunday morning before we break, and uh, I really uh, am so grateful for the, for the privilege and opportunity. I'm from Staten Island. Uh, more recently, the last seven years, uh, God called my family and I there, and Staten Island kind of gets a bad rap. How many of you have heard that Staten Island is the worst of the New York City boroughs? Anybody heard that before? I mean, we get a bad, bad rap on Staten Island. I mean, it's just really awful. I brought a friend of mine who's passed from Brooklyn. Uh, Greg's here, and, uh, and they kind of pick on us, to be honest with you. The other, the other boroughs kind of pick on us, but I really think that it's rooted in jealousy. I think those other boroughs are jealous of Staten Island. And let me tell you what they're jealous of. I have a parking spot 10 feet from my front door, and it belongs to me. <laughs> Glory to God. None of my other brothers in New York City can say that. So when you hear people picking on Staten Island, just know it's a matter of jealousy. That's what it is. It's a, it's a jealous uh, picking, and so we'll take that as well. Usually, usually, um, whenever events like this happen, and a guest pastor is invited in to speak, and that pastor, you know, has a family, and we've got a church, and we, we preach every week. Usually what happens is the pastor comes into the retreat, and he dusts off a message series he's already done at his church, okay? And I was ready to do that, and that's cool. There's nothing wrong with that, you know what I mean? Like, there's nothing wrong whatsoever. I had prepared. Tori asked me to do this uh, probably uh, almost a year ago, maybe nine, ten months ago, that he asked me to, to, to speak at this year's men's retreat, and I thought, yeah, I'd be happy to, absolutely. And, um, and I knew that my, uh, my doctor of ministry was wrapping up at this point in time. It's going to be a busy season, but no big deal. I'll just dust off an old message series from my church, and I'll bring it to these guys, and it will be awesome. And that's usually what happens. It's usually what happens. You come up, you hang out with some friends, you spend a couple of days in this beautiful location, and you deliver messages you've already written, and, uh, and then you go home. And it's, it's usually what happens is there's nothing wrong with that. But the Lord wouldn't let me do that this week. I'm serious. He wouldn't let me do it. I, I've been the last several weeks saying, okay, God, I need to know which message series, you know, which one. I got a good one on the Ten Commandments I could bring. Lord, I got something out of Ephesians we could talk about. I did this incredible series out of Haggai last year that, that may work. I mean, I'm, okay, tell me, Lord, tell me, Lord, which, which one? Where are we going? These guys are going to be here, and they're going to want to hear from you. So help me understand, what should I do? What should I do? And I'm getting up to last week, and I still don't know. And finally, my wife and I were at lunch, and I hate it when she's right. Um, <laughs> 
And she said, maybe you need to write something unique and special for those guys and for that weekend. I'm like, wow. And so that's what we've done. I'm still working on it too, actually. So I've got these first two written. I'm going to take tomorrow afternoon and dive in on the third and the fourth. But I really do believe, I say this in all sincerity, all joking aside, all, uh, all kidding aside about baseball or whatever else. I believe that God has something for us this weekend. Do you agree? I think God's got something that, that, that he wants to do in, in, in each and every one of our hearts and lives uh, that's unique for us. And I think he's got a word for you. And I think he's got a word for me. And my challenge to you on the opening night, the first message, the, the, the kickoff session, is do not assume that God's got nothing for you this weekend. Do not fall prey or fall into the trap of believing you know exactly how it's going to go. Because the fact of the matter is the Bible says that, that God is sovereign over all creation. We don't know how the weekend is going to go. He knows exactly how the weekend is going to go. And he knows exactly what it is that he wants to say and what it is he wants to change and what it is he wants to do in every single one of our lives. The only question for us is, will we surrender to it? Will we be willing to release our control of the weekend? Will we be willing to say, Lord, whatever it is you say to me, I'm here to listen. Whatever it is you call from me, Lord, I'm ready to repent. Whatever it is you ask me to do, God, before you even ask it, the answer is yes. And if we can start off on session number one, night number one, saying, yes, Lord, the answer is yes. Don't know what the question is, Lord, but the answer is yes. Then I think we're in for something very, very special and very, very unique together. So I'm excited about that. I'm looking forward to it. I'm, I've been fired up about this time for so, so incredibly long. And today I want to talk to you about the concept of manhood, the concept of being a courageous, godly man. I don't know if you're a note taker, if you are, if you're not, if you've got a phone, if you've got something to write with, if you've got a Bible with you, if you want to join me in a text, and if you don't, that's cool, just lock in and listen. But we're going to be primarily tonight in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1. And as we turn our way to Genesis chapter 1, I'm going to find your way down to verse number 27, because tonight we're talking about manhood. We're talking about what it is, laying the foundation for an entire weekend where we're going to let God speak to us through his word on what it means to be a man of God. Now, when you hear that word man, what comes to mind? You hear that word man, who comes to mind? You think about a manly man, who do you think? I mean, some of you guys are thinking it's Aaron Judge, right? He's crushing the ball, right? He's breaking records left and right, you know what I mean? You think about a man, a man's man, a, a powerful man, a, a dominant man, somebody that, somebody that you look up to. You think of somebody I mean, like John Cena, you know, a bodybuilder, wrestler, just muscle-bound, got muscles in his earlobes, right? That's, that's a real man. We might think of somebody who we feel like is powerful, somebody who's wealthy, somebody who knows how to get stuff done, somebody who's a businessman that knows how to make decisions, Maybe you think about a man, when you think of man's man, you think of someone like, a, like a, the TV show years ago was, uh, was made after Ray Romano, you know, Ray, everybody loves Ray, you remember that guy? He kind of had his life all figured out, he, was, he played dumb, so his wife did everything for him, and he got to do whatever he wanted to do, somewhere like, that's the life I want right there, somebody to do everything for me. Years ago, John Wayne was considered the, the, the epitome of a man's man, horseback riding and chasing down bandits, right? 
we think about the ideal, some of you already said it, we think about the ideal person, think about the ideal man. We think, who is a real man? Does our mind ever go to Jesus? Does it ever go to the Son of God? We think about a man's man. Are we thinking about somebody with muscles and money? Or are we thinking about somebody that says that blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth? We think about a man's man. We think of somebody who, who is able to dominate the company and win everything they go into. Are we thinking about somebody that says, no, 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 no. If you want to be first, you've got to be last. If you want to be, if you want to be, if you want to be great, you've got to be a servant. Is that what comes to our mind? Many times it's not, because we have allowed ourselves to have a definition of manhood that it's shaped more by the culture than by Christ. We have fallen prey to the belief that what a true man is is more shaped by winning than it is worship. It's shaped more by what we want and aspire ourselves to be in this world than it is what it is that God is calling us to be to prepare us for the next. In order to understand manhood, we have to first understand humanity. So Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 says this. After God had created everything in the world, he created five days, he created everything under the sun. The heavens, the earth, the, the plants, the animals, the seas, the, uh, the fish, the birds, he, everything in the world. The final thing he created on day number six, Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 says this. So God created man in his own image. Everybody say image. Image. He created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Now that word image is probably exactly what you think it is. It's a representation. It's a reflection. It's after a likeness. When it says that God created human beings or man in his image, and it uses man here in the, in the sense of, of, of both genders, he created people in his image. That means he made them after his own likeness. It really deals not so much with the physical. The Bible tells us that God is, 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 is a spirit, and therefore we don't look at God in terms of a body, a physical body. And so when he says he made man in his image, he's not talking about our physical appearance with head and toes and legs and those kinds of things. He's talking about the substantive aspects of our, of our makeup that are not physical but that are transcendent. When the Bible says that we're made in the image of God, he's speaking of how we are made in God's image in our mental makeup. You look at the rational, volitional nature of people. What makes us different than animals? What makes a man different than, 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 uh, than, than the trees outside growing? What makes a person different than the dogs and the, and the horses and the birds that we look around and see in the world? Well, one of the major differences is that we have a rational, volitional capacity beyond most any of those things. Do you know that whenever you read something someone else wrote, you're actually looking at the image of God reflected in that person, even if they're not a believer in God. If you pick up a book and read, you're reading the, the image of God transcendent through a person who is reflecting that image in what they've, write, what they've written. A, a, a horse can't write a book. A horse can't have that kind of thought. God gives it to human beings. Same thing when you, th you think about inventing, something that's been invented. One of the things I'm grateful for that's been invented is air con conditioning. Can I get a witness? I don't know if the guy who invented AC is a Christian, but he has definitely reflected the image of God. Amen? In creating that incredible thing. It's a, it's a reflection of the image of God at work in someone that we invent anything. So not just mental, but also moral. Moral. We were designed to reflect the image of God in our moral compass and makeup, which is conscience. Now, we know that once you become a follower of Christ, you have what's called the Holy Spirit and the conviction of the Holy Spirit to, talk, to tell you whenever things are right or wrong. But even before that, and apart from that, you have what's called a conscience. God has given you the capacity to sense right from wrong. So we look around the world and we see a law. See, if a law prohibits murder, we say that's a good law, 
Even if that law was created by somebody that wasn't a Christian or wasn't a believer, it's still a good law. And that law is reflective of the fact that people who made it are made in the image of God because they have a conscience that tells them murder is wrong. It's the image of God born out in the context of his creation. Anytime someone feels guilty for someone, it's a reflection of the image of God born out in their in their conscience. Same thing when you see a firm virtue. You look at something and say, that's beautiful, or that's virtuous, or that's good, or that's wonderful. We look at it, and that, that impulse within every human being is reflective of the image of God. So it's not just mental, it's also moral. There's also the reflection of the image of God in the context of our social makeup. Notice the way the scripture says, let us make man in our image, God says in chapter 2. Us being a reference to the Trinity, the triune nature of God. We just sang it a moment ago. Our God is three in what? In one. We worship a God who is intrinsically relational. So anytime somebody gets married and we see a relational makeup, we recognize the image of God born out in that person, that they are made in his image and therefore they are made for relationships. The fact of the matter is, is that we have fellowship. Friendship is a good thing. Our, our desire and craving for true friendship, it's indicative of the relational nature of God born out in the image of God within the context of our lives. That's not all I said. Genesis 1.27 says this. It's on the screen. You guys look at there. Okay, here we go. Let's read it all out together. All together. One, two, three. Ready? So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now let's talk about that second part. We've talked about the image of God piece. People are made in the image of God. We bear the image, the imprint, the fingerprint, the, re the reflection of our creator. But then he goes on to say, male and female, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now in one sense, we recognize that all humanity is made in the image of God. Let me just say that again. All humanity is made in the image of God. Every single human being that has ever existed from conception to death was made in the image of God. That includes believers and non-believers. That includes men and women. That includes those with special needs and those that are more neurotypical. That includes those that have physical disabilities as well as those that do not. That includes all political persuasion. Somebody say amen. Made in the image of God. We all bear the imprint of our creator. And therefore, because every single race, every single people group, every single culture, every single person that has ever existed is made in the image of God, that means they have intrinsic worth and value just because there is. Which means that they are deserving of our respect, our love, our compassion, our concern, and our help. It starts there. So as God is giving that statement to us, every human being is created in his image. He then goes on, male and female, he created them. He speaks to distinctions. That within this race that's made in his image, there are two types, basically. There are two, there are two genders, we would say. Two types of people bearing the image of God. The first is male. And one of the things we know about males, stated right here in the text, and every single one of us knows, they are different than females. Amen? Amen? We're different. Very different. <laughs> Very, we'll get into some of that in just a moment. But equally valued. In the same way, females are different from males, but they are equally valued. Amen? They carry the same worth, dignity, and value before God. They are no less loved than men. 
They are no less desired than men. They are no less important than men. They are, are no less uh, 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 treasured by the King of kings, the Lord of lords than men. Women have equal worth and value before their creator. This is not a women's conference, but I will just say as well, listen, dear friends, in history, Christians have really made some bad, bad, bad mistakes as it relates to the value of women within our churches and within our families and within our lives. And we can get into that at some other point in time, but this, this conference and this time together is going to be focused more on God's, God's plan for man, but I want you to say God is equally passionate about his plan for women, though it is different than his plan for men in some respects, it is equally treasured and valued before the Heavenly Father. But here's the thing we know. Our image bearing of our Creator, as well as the uniqueness of male and female, has been affected by something that happened in Genesis chapter 3. So this is Genesis chapter 1. You fast forward to Genesis chapter 3 and you have male and female, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And the serpent comes along. The serpent, he is the devil. He's, the, he's Satan. He's come to the garden. He's come to, to, to do what Jesus said he would do, steal and kill and destroy. And so what does he do? He tempts Adam and Eve. He goes to them and he tempts them with doing the very one thing that God said not to do. God said, eat from any tree you want, eat from any place you want, but do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because as you eat it, you surely will die. And so God gave them one prohibition, one thing, stay away from that. And that's the very thing the devil came and tempted them to partake. Now, again, you understand if you study the Bible exactly what happened. They actually ate of this tree they were forbidden to eat of. And when they did, sin entered the world. That was the moment whenever our image-bearing status of our Creator became marred. It became affected. Whenever sin entered the world, all of a sudden the image that we carried of our Creator has now been tainted, it's now been perverted, it's now been affected, not, not destroyed completely, but it has been affected. And the relationships between men and women and relationships between men and God and women and God have also been drastically altered and affected. The Bible says through one man's sin did sin enter the world. And it's affected all of us. Right now at Salem, we're going through a series called The Struggle is Real. And what we're talking about over the course of this, this series is the fact that we all have a flesh, a sin nature at work within us, and we all have the Spirit of God at work within us as well. And one of the most important things we could ever do as Christians is to discern in any given moment what is the Spirit saying and what is the flesh calling me to do. What's the deed of the flesh here and what is the gift of the, the fruit of the Spirit? How can I bear out the fruit of the Spirit as opposed to succumbing to the deeds of the flesh? It's, a, it's an ongoing fight and it never goes away. And from the moment that Adam and Eve sinned, that's exactly where each and every one of us are. We are in the tension. We're living in the tension. We're made in the image of God. We've been separated from God by our sin. We have a flesh, a sin nature in our lives that's constantly pulling us away from God and pulling us to do what we want to do, but yet God has given us his amazing grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which reconciles us to him and gives us the power of the Holy Spirit with which we can do battle between the flesh, do battle with the flesh. It's vitally important. So in talking about this concept, let's talk about manhood. What does it mean to be a male? What does it mean to be a man? And what does it mean to be a godly man? Those are three categories. Everyone in this room is a male because you have an XY chromosome, okay? Because you were created, you were conceived with an XY chromosome. Because of your molecular makeup, you are a male. Does that mean you're a man? Not necessarily. It, not necessarily. You might have a six-year-old son, seven-year-old son. Is he a man? No. Does he have XY chromosome? No. And so he's a boy, he's a male, but he's not a man. 
Has anybody ever here met somebody who's not a seven-year-old that doesn't act like a man? Anybody? Anybody ever been someone who's not a seven-year-old that didn't act like a man? We've all been there. We've all made foolish decisions and say that wasn't a wise decision. So what is a, what is a male? A male is someone with an XY chromosome. A man is someone who accepts appropriate responsibility for his life. And then what is a godly man? But a godly man is a courageous man. A godly man is something distinct. Let me give you a few definitions of godly manhood. The first is from Robert Lewis from Men's Fraternity. He says, a real man, what does he do? He rejects passivity and accepts responsibility. He leads courageously and expects God's greater reward. John Piper, pastor from Minneapolis, Minnesota, says, at the heart of mature masculinity is a sense of benevolent responsibility to lead, provide for, and protect women in ways appropriate to man's differing relationships. Let me find out who's here, okay? So let me ask you a question. If you are not married, you don't have kids, stand up. You're not married, you don't have kids. Stand up. How many, how many, how many guys that don't have kids and you're not married? Okay, one, two, three, six, nine, twelve. Hey, welcome these guys, would you? They came to a men's conference. Good to see you guys. Thanks for being here. Yeah. Very cool, very cool, very cool. Hey, you can have a seat. How many of you are married with no kids? Married with no kids. Anybody here married with no kids? Stand up. Married with no kids. All right, welcome these guys. A handful. Good to see you guys. Yep. All right. Very nice, very nice. How many of you guys are married with kids? Hang on. Married with kids under the age of 18 still at home. Married with kids under the age of 18 still at home. Stand up. What's up? Yes. Hey, do me a favor. If you see, when you see these guys dozing, please hit them with your elbow. Wake them up, man. They come up here to get some sleep. They ain't got no sleep at home. Rock and roll, right? And how many of you guys are married, kind of empty nesters? Maybe you had a boomerang kid that came back, you threw them, and they kept coming back. I don't know, and something like that. How many of you are married, but you don't have young or school-age children at home? How many of you guys married uh, and don't have kids at home? How many of you guys? Welcome, guys. Good to see you. Good to see you. Good to see you. All right, rock and roll, rock and roll. And anybody here single again, maybe a widower or, uh, or just uh, single again? Anybody else? Anybody here that's not, not older, not married? There we go. Give it up right there. Anybody else? A few others? All right. Rock and, rock and roll. Rock and roll. So <clears throat> I wanted to get a sense of this because I want to know who's here. Like who, who are we talking about? What's, what, what is the, the place of life we found ourselves? Because what we're going to do over the next several days is we're going to talk about uh, manhood, godly manhood in the different stages of life. And the majority of you are in a specific stage of life, you're in a specific stage of your manhood. Whereas you are married, you have children, and you have the responsibility to a group of people that are looking at you and counting on you in order to, to, for you to be a godly man for them. They need that from you. They're desperate for it from you. And so a lot of what we're going to talk about is going to help you as well. But that also is going to help those of you who are not in that stage of life as well understand what role you play as a godly man in this specific scenario. So if you're going to take notes, let me give you five things, five distinctives of godly manhood that I think will help set the tone and lay the foundation for what we're going to talk about this weekend. So you can make notes on your phone if you want to. You can write them down. If you're really good, just remember them. But get, let me give you five distinctives, five distinctives of godly manhood, okay? The first distinctive of a godly man is self-control, is self-control. It, it's, it's the capacity or the willingness to address your passions. A godly man must understand because the Holy Spirit lives inside of him, because he is going to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, which, by the way, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and what's the last one? 
self-control. That, that's the fruit of the Spirit of God inside of us that gives us the capacity to exhibit this, but self-control. And talking about self-control, you might come up with the normal areas. Well, it's got to be self-control in relationship to, you know, don't, don't, don't uh, uh, do drugs. Don't get, don't get drunk, right? Don't, don't go to excess with, with sexual temptation, but it also applies to food, it also applies to self-control when it comes to money. Don't be overspending and getting in crazy amounts of debt. Or don't be someone who's stingy and, and, and not show generosity in giving of money. And, and not only that, self-control as it relates to leisure. You know, knowing when it's time to work. Knowing when it's time to relax and, and to play. So the first distinctive of manhood is self-control. A second distinctive of godly manhood is provision for others. Number two, provision. Provision provision for others. It gives us the opportunity to understand that we have a responsibility to other people. God made you to glorify himself, but also made you to be a blessing to others. You understand that? You were not created just for yourself. You were not created just to, to live the life that you wanted to live, to have your happiness, to, to live your truth and to be yourself and then someday die. God created you also for others to make provision for others. So this starts primarily in our own family, that we take care of, the, of those in our own family. The Bible says that, that anybody that does not provide for the needs of his own household is, is worse than an unbeliever, it says. So we have a responsibility to provide for the needs of our, of our own home. But here's the thing you got to understand about provision. It is not only about money. Providing for the needs of those around us is not only about paying the bills. It's not only about paying the rent and paying the mortgage and keeping the power on. Providing for the needs of my family, and I have three children at home, I have a wife, I've got my niece who's living with us now, she's going to school in New York, and she lives, uh, so I, the responsibility I have for those people is not just to make money and take financial care of them, it also means that I am providing for them with my time, that I'm present with them, that I spend time with them, that I hang out with them, that I know them, that I love them, and that I care for them with consideration. It's not just about money, it's also about supporting them. What do they desire? What is my son into and how can I support him in it? What does my daughter love and how can I connect with her in a way she understands, in a way that she appreciates and enjoys? What can I do to, to teach them and provide a structure of, of instruction and growth and encouragement for them? What can I do to encourage those? See, a lot of times we think of providing for our family, we just think of me, oh yeah, I've got to make money, I've got to make a living, I've got to bring home the bacon. And if I can do that, then I've done my job. If I can do that, then I've done my job. No, 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 if you've done that, you've done part of your job. You guys okay? Everybody all right? You follow what I'm saying here? Because there's a lot of guys that I know of and a lot of guys that I've been at time to time. There have been times in my life where I've gotten this out of balance. Where all I'm doing is providing for their financial well-being, but I haven't checked in on their heart. I'm not getting down on the floor and playing with my boys. I'm not going up in my daughter's room and finding out what music she's liking right now and uh, wh who's her best friend at this point in time and what, what show is her favorite. And, and those, I'm, not, I'm not connecting with my wife on, a, on an emotional, intellectual level. Boy, I feel good about the fact I paid the bills, though. It's deeper than that. So five distinctives of godly manhood. Self-control about our passions. Provision for others, primarily about our family. It's not just about money. Number three is protection of others. Provision for others and protection for others. This is not only about physical protection, right? If you're laying in bed with your wife and there's a crash downstairs and the window's open and somebody's climbing in your house, 
I'm sure most of us in this room would say, all right, it's time to get up. It's time to be a man. Let's go down there and figure this out. Let's see who it is, you know. And we'll go down there. You know, not many of us are going, all right, honey, I did it last time. It's your time this time. <laughs> Call me if you need me. I'll be up here asleep, you know. <laughs> no, we think of it, and we're ready for that moment. We're ready for that moment. I know some guys that are eager for that moment, man. <laughs> It's like, it's like the guys that have four-wheel drives and they're praying somebody's stuck in the ditch because they're going to use their four-wheel drive finally. They live for that moment of helping somebody out of a ditch, right? It's the same way I got guys in my church that, I mean, you wouldn't imagine how hard it is to own a gun in New York City, but some of the guys in my church, they own firearms and they are begging for a moment that they can use and, and just be cowboyed up on somebody that's trying to mess with them, you know? And that's not good either. But protection is more about just, than just physical. It's actually protecting people also from lies. Am I protecting my children from the lies they're being bombarded with every single day? Am I protecting my wife from the lies the devil's trying to sell her? Am I protecting the people I love from the deception of the enemy? It's more than just protection from a mugger. And sure, by all means, protect your family from somebody trying to, you know, trying to harm them physically. But the vast majority of times, that's not the case. More, 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 more. Am I protecting my family from the ways in which the enemy is coming after them? which usually is not for their money and their wallet. It's usually after their minds and their hearts. Am I in tune to the wiles of the enemy, the wiles of the devil, as he comes after my wife and after my kids and after my home and after my friends and my fellow church members, not just about my family, but those that I love and those that are around me as well. Proverbs chapter 4 is a really powerful passage. And it's father. it's a father who's passing on something to his son for his protection. And it wasn't a gun, and it wasn't a sword, and it wasn't a bow and arrow. The book of Proverbs says that what the father is giving to the son for his protection is something called wisdom. Something called wisdom. If I love my son, I'm going to take care of my son. It means I am going to impart to this boy understanding of how to live. Here's the definition of wisdom. Living life skillfully. If I can impart that to him, I have set him up and protected him for life. Number four, distinctives of godly manhood. You've got self-control, provision for others, protection for others. Here's number four, service and leadership. Service and leadership. A real man of God is a man of humility. A real man of God is a man of sacrifice. A real man of God is a man of generosity. And his leadership over his home is humble and self-sacrificing. It's not assertive. I don't know how many times I've been in a couple's meeting with a, a couple having trouble. And I look at the man and say, what seems to be the problem? And he says, this woman will not submit to me. <laughs> really? Because you seem so easily lovable, my friend. I just... Uh, I got to be honest, in 20 years with my wife, 18, you know, married and a year and a half of dating and engaged before that, there's never been a moment where I said, you need to submit to me because I'm the head of this house. Not a single time. Because what God has called me to do is actually greater than what he's called her to do. He's called me to love my wife as Christ loved the church and to lay my life down for her. And here's what I've discovered, that if I am loving her well, the submission piece is natural. She's eager to submit to a Christ-like husband and joins me in that journey together. 
In all reality, that's what a godly man exhibits is humility, generosity, and sacrifice. Dennis Rainey wrote an incredible book. A lot of what I'm going to share with you by way of illustration this week comes from that book, Stepping Up uh, by Rainey. He runs Family Life, which is a a subsidiary of Crew, and he writes this uh, powerful statement. He says, a man is called to be a servant leader. To take responsibility for his wife and children to put their needs ahead of his own, he's called to temperate, to demonstrate selfless, sacrificial love. The type of love we see in God toward his children. That's what a godly man is. It's a man that represents and exhibits the character of Christ in the way that he lives. Number five, finally, a submission to God's design. Submission to God's design. So, distinctive to godly man, that we're going to flesh out over the next several weeks, or the next several sessions uh, this weekend, self-control, provision for others, protection for others, service and leadership, and submission to God's design. See, it all starts with and is impossible without a relationship to God. Everything I've just outlined for you about a godly man are things that you will find exhibited in the life of Jesus. If you read the Gospels, and you study in closely on who Jesus was and what did Jesus do and what kind of man was Jesus. If our example of godly manhood is not John Wayne, if our example of godly manhood is not, is not some athlete or some, or, or some dominant businessman, if our example of godly manhood is Jesus, then these are the things we will value more than someone who can dominate others or impress others or, or be, take things for themselves. The psalmist wrote this, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me, I love that phrase, knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it oh so very well. We, we use these verses a lot of times when we're raising money for activism against abortion, right? Because we think every soul is precious, and we believe that. We believe every life matters. But dear friends, have you ever thought about this passage in the context of yourself? Has it ever occurred to you that you, sir, you were knit together in your mother's womb those years ago, that God made you, and he made you like he made you, on purpose, for a purpose. He made you on purpose for a purpose. You know what that means? That means, dude, you matter. You matter to God. And you matter to people. And you matter to this world. And if, and if you were to leave this world, then a part of what makes this world wonderful would be gone. And we'd all lose it. Because, bro, you're, you're a masterpiece. You're a masterpiece of your creator. I had the opportunity last week to do the most incredible adventure. My wife gave me for my 40th birthday the most amazing adventure I could ever ask for. Okay, so for five days last week, I was in New Mexico, and I was on a horse, and I drove cattle across the prairie. (laughs) City Slickers, you guys seen the movie? I lived it! (laughs) I lived it! But our trail boss didn't die. He lived lived the whole time. He, He made it all the way to the end, thank God. But here's going to tell you one of the coolest things about that trip. It was an amazing trip. It, I would do it again in a heartbeat. It was so much fun. It's funny because I'm from the deep south. We moved to New York, and my wife was trying to plan this trip for me for my 40th birthday last year, and she kept looking for friends of mine who would go with me. And she asked some of these guys in the front row, and they're like, no, not, not even, no, I'm not doing that. You should ask someone else, you know. So anyway, it, it was funny. We had to go back to my, my college buddies. One of my college buddies from Alabama finally decided to go with me. So, but one of the coolest things about that trip last, last week, man, is, is that every night we slept out under the stars. 
I mean, and we were, we were probably 60 miles from the closest town, 300 miles from the closest big city, okay? And I live in New York City, all right? I know Staten Island, you don't think it's, it is New York City, okay? We pay the taxes to prove it, all right? But nonetheless, so I'm out there in the middle of nowhere, New Mexico. Nowhere, New Mexico. And we're laid up on these, on these uh, military cots. And at night, when the sun goes down and it gets dark, and it gets dark like 8.30, when you would lay on these cots on, on your back by the campfire, and it was a panoramic explosion of stars. I mean, just from that horizon all the way over to that horizon, I'm talking millions upon millions upon millions of stars that where I live don't exist. They're not there. You think you see one. And nope, that's an airplane going to LaGuardia right there. There it goes. That one's moving too fast. That's not a star. But man, I got up to New Mexico. I laid on my back, right? And I was watching those stars. And me and my buddy from Alabama, we're, we, our cots were kind of close. And we're just talking like, can you believe this? Have you ever seen anything like this? No, I've never seen, I've never seen anything like this. I'm, and even in, in places like where I'm from in Georgia, you know, it's, it's more suburban, a little more rural, definitely more rural than where I live now. You see stars there too. Out here in, in, in New Hampshire, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. I've seen stars standing by that lake right there at family camp. It does not hold a candle to what I saw in New Mexico last week. And we were laying there at one point talking about it, and right above our heads, guys, in an instant, there was a shooting star flew right past us. Stunning. I mean, I couldn't help but think, the heavens declare the glory of God. All of your works, it proclaims, it's your handiwork, it proclaims who you are. That God spoke this into existence in six days and rested on the seventh. I am laying there overwhelmed by his glory and beauty. You ever been there? Maybe it's when your baby was born. First time you look in their face, you say, my Lord, look at your glory born out in this lizard-looking thing that just came out of my wife. It's ugly, but it's beautiful at the same time, right? You know? You get a sunset, right? You get, you get a moment. You go, you know, go out on the sea. Maybe you saw, saw something amazing. We've all had moments like this. Here's what I want you to do, and I'm going to finish with this. We're going to break and go to the bonfire and set ourselves up for tomorrow morning's message. But listen to me. If you could just give me a little bit of your time, and believe me when I tell you this. As glorious as that New Mexico sky was for me last week, you and I reflect his glory even more. Yes, he flung the stars into the sky by his own spoken word. Yes, of course, he, is, he has created this world and, and has revealed himself in it. Yes, his glory is known in his creation, no doubt. But not a single one of those stars can make the claim, I was made in his image. Not one of those stars could say, I was knit together in my mother's womb. I was fearfully and wonderfully made. I represent and reflect the intellectual and the emotional and the moral nature of my creator. Only one single solitary being on the planet can do that. And dude, that's you. And that's me. We were made to worship and reflect our creator in the way he made us in his image and in the way he made us men. So would you join me for the next few days on a journey together about what it means to be a godly man of courage, to embrace those five things we talked about a moment ago, to see how the Holy Spirit of God is the one that's going to bear it out in every single one of us, and to never, never, ever, ever, ever doubt the reality that we are made on purpose for a purpose. 
And that purpose is to glorify him and to bless others. I want to leave you with a question before we break. The question I want to leave you with is one that I'd like you to answer yourself and then answer to someone else before we come in here tomorrow. To someone, it could be out by the bonfire in a minute. It could be at breakfast over a cup of coffee in the morning. If you came with a group, you know, uh, then by all means discuss it around your group. Here's the question I want you to wrestle with because we're going to talk tomorrow about a, a lot about courage. Courageous manhood. What does it mean to be a man of courage? Okay, so here's the question I want you to answer, all right? What's the most courageous thing you've ever done? What's the most courageous thing you've ever done? Now, I'm not talking about skydiving or, you know, uh, doing something. I'm talking about something that demanded. That word courage, it comes from the uh, Latin words core, which means heart. So it, it, the concept of courage is doing something despite fears and anxieties. Every one of us have had moments of fear and anxiety, and we overcame it for a purpose, for a reason. Something demanded that we put aside our fears, anxieties, uh, trepidations, all those things, and do something courageous. Some of you, it may be something you had to take a stand. When you were tempted to do something, you didn't do it. Some of you, it might be that you had to confront somebody that was being abusive or harassing someone, yourself or someone you love. For others of you, it might have been a moment where the door was wide open for you to, to step out on your wife. But you, you courageously resisted that temptation. For some of you, as I finally spoke up and shared the gospel with a coworker or with a friend or with a family member that I was terrified about. Think about it. Think about it. And then share with somebody else, what's the most courageous thing you've ever done? And ask each other, hey, what's yours? Hey, what's yours? What's the most courageous thing you've ever done? And let's share that with one another. And let's put that in the frame of tomorrow as we get into this concept of courage at each stage of of our manhood. Can I pray for you? And then we're going to be dismissed. God, in Jesus' name, I thank you for this opportunity to open your word, to challenge these men, to, to, give, a, to give a word of, of what I hope is encouragement as to what you intend for each and every one of us based on how you made each and every one of us. God, thank you that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Thank you that we bear your image. Thank you that even though sin, sin has affected our representation of your image in our lives, we thank you for grace the grace of God that was given to us through Jesus Christ who died and rose again, that restores us, God, redeems us and restores us. Lord, we depend on you and your grace to flesh these things out. God, in this room of this size, I know there may be many that have not yet turned from their sin and placed their faith and trust in Jesus to save them. So, Lord, I pray this weekend would be a defining moment in their lives as they once and for all experience your forgiveness and your adoption into the, your family as a new member of your children. God, I thank you for all that you provide and all that you've given us in Christ Jesus. Help us to be the courageous men of God you've called us to be. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it.